Welcome to the Exponential Podcast. My name is Peyton Jones, and as Exponential's content director, I'll be your guide through the curation of the world's largest multiplication library of resources and training. We currently have four shows running Monday through Thursday, each with a different thrust towards accelerating multiplication. On Monday, join us for front lines tackling current issues facing pastors and planners. On Tuesday, tune in for Biblically Speaking, Theological Foundations for Transformative Race Conversations. On Wednesdays, Ralph Moorhead's Practical Multiplication, A Pastor's Guide to Accelerating Multiplication. And lastly, Candid Conversations is on Thursday, Unpacking Definitions of Diversity. Be sure to catch them all as they will serve as equipping companions on your discipleship journey towards multiplication. Today, we'll be catching up with Todd Wilson and Grant Skeldon on Candid Conversations. The Candid Conversation Show is intended to help leaders engage in conversations about diversity in a healthy way. Each show focuses on a topic and helps participants unpack what that topic is, why it's divisive, and what can be done to promote both change and unity. Let's join Todd and his co-host for today's episode of Candid Conversations. Hey, Exponential family, uh, excited to have you guys join us again for another Candid Conversation. Uh, today is episode three. Uh, we've had the privilege to interview Dr. John Perkins, uh, Miles McPherson, and today we have my friend, uh, Dr. Brian Loritz. He is a teaching pastor at the Summit Church over in North Carolina. He has wrote, written multiple books, one of his most recent books, Insider, Outsider. And uh, Brian, if you wouldn't mind, maybe uh, tell us a little bit about yourself, maybe some things I'm at a miss or things that um, are just even going on in your life in this COVID virus we find ourselves in. Yeah, these are unique times, aren't they? Well, first, let me say, Grant, it's uh, it's great being with you. Uh, I, uh, you, you, and the work that you do give me great hope for the um, the coming generation. So, yeah, I, I would say one of the more important things is the fact that my wife and I just celebrated 21 years of marriage, uh, married to uh, Corey uh, Loritz, and we've got three sons: uh, Quentin, who's 19; Miles, who's 17; and Jaden, who is 15. Um, I have always had a passion, um, you know, in my in, in my ministry uh, career uh, for the multi-ethnic church. So I, I'm really laboring to see the multi-ethnic church become the new normal uh, in our society. So gospel-centered, disciple-making, multi-ethnic churches um, is uh, is what I'm always striving towards. So it's 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 a privilege to be a part of that. Yeah, and you've written a couple books on the topic. Uh, I even the uh, letters to a Birmingham jail, um, as well as, uh, man, even the right color, wrong culture. Um, it was huge for me to even see a new lens for the church. But so, you know, and for any new people listening or watching today, uh, this candid conversations, we've been able to do this. Uh, we kind of switch off. It's either, it's always Todd Wilson, president of Exponential, who's on here. Maybe Todd, you want to say hi or anything? Hello. Good to have you, Brian. <laughs> so glad you're here today. Always great being with you, Todd. Yeah, and then we he switches off with me or Ephraim Smith, and we've both been doing different interviews and co-hosting. But, I mean, one of the questions even just to start out with, Brian, was uh, since you wrote Insider, Outsider, I'll assume about a year ago, maybe a year and a half ago, you talk about actually writing the book and then all the time it takes to, to uh, produce it and publish it. Um, how much do you think it speaks even more so into where we are today uh, since writing the book? Yeah, so the book came out in the fall of 2018. In fact, uh, uh, my book, Insider Outsider, came out the same day as Eric Mason's Woke Church. Two different publishers. We, we, didn't, uh, we didn't plan that. Um, and, and neither could we forecast um, 2020, uh, especially from uh, a racial lens. So, you know, what I really try to present in that book, I think, uh, unfortunately, is timeless. And that is, I just argue that, man, we, we've got to have white evangelicals. I love white evangelicals, um, but we need to go to war with white evangelicalism. And it's the ism part that I think historically in our country, what's happened is, is the original evangelicals in our country were the Puritans. And I love their books, and they've got an incredible soteriology, 
but they've got feet of clay. And while they had an incredible soteriology, they, they had a horrible anthropology. And so, you know, we could talk about Cotton Mather and the fact that um, when he negotiated uh, his, um, his pastoral package at a church he was going to, uh, actually a slave was a part of the negotiation deal. Uh, he named yeah. the biblical name Onesimus, called it it. And so you're just going, man, how do these great men of God just completely miss it? Uh, in this area. And that's kind of a legacy that we're seeing to this day. And unfortunately, racism continues to nip at our heels uh, among white evangelicalism, but it's not so much an overt active as much as it is a passive. And it's seen in such phrases as, man, just preach the gospel, as if the gospel doesn't entail uh, issues of injustice. And so what I argue for is uh, we need to dismantle evangelicalism, and we need evangelicals, and we need to be mutually submitting to and learning from one another within the fences of biblical orthodoxy. Brian, uh, the... uh if you just uh, an inside or outside, you know, the, the theme of this topic. Go ahead, Mark. Oh, can you hear me, Brian? Yeah, I can hear you. Yeah, um, the uh, a little bit. Just give the backstory that led to writing Insider Outsider. You know, every yeah. story, every book has a backstory. What's the backstory? Absolutely. So. Um, I had written an article uh, for Christianity Today. My friend Ed Stetzer had reached out to me, I I think it was um, in the early part of 2016, where where some of these thoughts were were percolating. Um, And that just got overwhelming uh, appeal. Uh, And then in a six-week stretch in um, November to early December of 2016, um, I just it just poured out of me, and really, um, of course, we know what's going on there. Uh, uh, President Trump has won the election. Now, again, I am not I am not here to criticize or or try to sway people's mind or whatever. What I was reacting to was the deep division um, that I just felt like had bubbled to the surface, um, and I wanted to speak in such a way. Um, that wasn't necessarily a polemic uh, or a didactic kind of a deal as much as it is my own personal narrative. Because we can argue uh, perception of facts all day day long. We cannot argue experience. And so that moment was really the catalyst. And Insider Outsider really is a thematic memoir as it relates to the stages of my life being immersed in white evangelicalism. Mm-hmm. But, and Grant, you can jump in here, but um, th- this idea of experience, Brian, we, we do steer away from the politics thing as much right. as we can. So I, I'm not looking to get into the polarization of politics, but when it comes to the experiential part you're talking about, um, if we went back 55 years, like all the way back to 1965 at this point, um, what we would call white evangelicals, vote for the Republican candidate on average 80% of the time. Uh, African-Americans vote for the Democratic candidate 90% of the time, literally every time 90% of the time. Just that, if you want to call that a polarization or it's definitely a difference, what's the, talk to us about the experiential part that causes that, that, that you think underpins that? Like what causes that to be different? Kind yeah, of? so I have a whole section in my book, Insider Outsider, uh, called Trump, in, in which we get into uh, politics. And one of the things that I say there is that politics is a sport played by the subjective. So no one is completely objective when they go into the voting booth. And I am not putting any kind of a moral label on that. We tend to vote our felt needs, right? So if, if I'm poor and living in some urban community, um, that's going to sway how I vote. Um, if I'm middle to upper middle class living in a suburban community, uh, that's going to play a part for how I vote. And again, I'm not attaching any moral value to it. So I, I think both sides, um, th- there is this sense of um, subjectivity to it. Now, what's interesting, though, is 
Um, in, in 1965, right, right around that time, we've got the Voting Rights Act, there's the Civil Rights Act, um, and it's a Democratic president, um, LBJ, who's pushing this, these things through. Um, and I want to be careful, you know, the historical record is clear. Um, uh, LBJ wasn't necessarily gung-ho when it came to African Americans. But before that, African Americans were Republican, and that goes all the way back by and large to Lincoln. But when LBJ, LBJ pushes these massive legislative deals through, the pendulum now swings. You got the Dixiecrats who now uh, pull over and they, they, they do a coup and they now become Republicans. Uh, African-Americans who many of them were Republicans now become Democrat and we haven't lost that over the last 50 plus years. Yeah, and would you say, Grant, I'm gonna let you jump in, but just to close no, that no. out, the. If we bring the church in, then that that difference, both positive, negative, without you know drawing any judgments on it, are, are, is that distinction between the voting practices because of the church, in spite of the church? Like, where does evangelicalism and Christianity fit in the voting pattern? Is it more driven by? secular experience or church experience or where does church fit into that equation well if you read dr king's letter uh from a birmingham jail uh which i would say is the most valuable part of um the book that i edited letters to a birmingham jail the king family let us take that whole letter and it's the introduction um one of the things that we see is king goes to jail during the birmingham campaign um I think it's um, on Good Friday around then, around then the spring of 1963. While in jail, an open letter is, um, is penned by 10 clergy who are white. And in essence, what they're saying, it's a passive deal. They're saying, well, King, you and your lieutenants, y'all just wait. Um, you know, you don't need to push things. Um, you know, just be patient. And King is responding um, to, to clergy. And one of the things that unfortunately makes his letter still relevant to this day is King is not railing against the KKK. He's not railing against um, the Bull Connors of the world. He's railing against his words, what he calls the white moderate. And he says, I've stood um, in southern towns and I've seen your churches and they are glorious and they are beautiful pieces of architecture. But, but they're in segregated communities. And he goes, I wonder what kind of Christian goes there? What kind of person attends there? And that's why I'm saying, unfortunately, it's still relevant. Because today we still have a, a passive church that's late to the game. And one of the ways we see it is, you know, on the one hand, while I'm grateful, I've never experienced this much white empathy and advocacy, uh, especially in the aftermath of George Floyd. And these protests have been multi-ethnic. It's brought tears to my eyes. It's great. But part of me feels like it's almost a little too late. Like this movement, um, it's a leaderless movement by and large. And it used to be centered in the church during the civil rights movement. But I think because of the passivity of the modern day church, We've lost our, our witness and our credibility to the world. Can the church grab that leadership role back at this point, or, or are you concerned it can't grab that leadership role back? Look, I'm always going to be hopeful. I, I, absolutely, uh, I absolutely believe so. You know, my, my eschatology, um, you know, I, I, I see that framework between, you know, um, you know, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And I think we're, we're, we're in the process of trying to restore things. And, and that's not just spiritual, that's also profoundly tangible, physical, sociological. And so I'm hopeful, but what it can't be is just the black church. So if, if we're going to topple systems of injustice, it can't be those at the bottom, the powerless who do it. We need our white brothers and sisters to lock arms with us because they are still the powerful to help us to dismantle these uh, issues of systemic injustice. Yeah, Brian, it's, it's, I mean, it's pretty powerful to say, uh, sometimes I feel like it's maybe too late. However, I've, I've experienced that and even seen that from some of my friends where it's like, man, I'm tired of answering questions about what to read. I'm tired of being like the object of education. Um, I, I've brought this up so much and now it's like, now you guys are coming to me all the time. And so I know the theme of this, this uh, conversation is 
what people of color wish white leaders knew. Um, I, I would want to ask the question right now, in light of what you just said and acknowledging it, some people are just tired or feel like it's too late. Um, instead of what do people of color wish white people knew, uh, what do you think people of color wish white people would do um, right now? Yeah, so I, I would say, you know, uh, one, um, we need you to preach a holistic gospel. Um, and, and really what I want to appeal to is I think every Christian should strive to be an Ephesians 2 Christian, the whole chapter. Um, you know, Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, you know, if, if you grew up in a conservative church, you know that almost by heart. I mean, it's all about vertical reconciliation. This is who we were prior to Christ, uh, but God being rich in mercy. And then several times Paul says, for by grace you have been saved, for by grace you have been saved. We love that, but keep reading. And if you keep reading, now we get to verse 11, and he says, therefore, which you don't have to spend a day in seminary to figure this out, that what he is about to say, he's going to connect with what he's just said, you Gentiles in the flesh. Again, you don't have to spend a day in, in seminary, Grant, to figure out. He's now talking about issues of ethnic diversity and unity. So he goes from vertical reconciliation to horizontal reconciliation. And so because of that, I've always, you know, I, I think we need to preach a framework that the gospel is both vertical and horizontal. Now, I want to be clear. I am not saved based on what I do for the poor. I'm not saved based on, you know, my relationships with people who are ethnically different. However, um, just as I would say um, an unforgiving Christian is an oxymoron or a greedy Christian is an oxymoron, I would at the same time say an ethnically indifferent or racist Christian is an oxymoron. And yeah. so ethnic unity is an indicator light bearing witness to the authenticity of my salvation. And what the conservative church has historically done is, We've just preached verses 1 through 10 of Ephesians 2, and we leave out the horizontal implications of that, and we've preached a disjointed gospel. So what, I, what do I wish our, the white church would do? Preach a holistic gospel and encourage your people to, to live a holistic Ephesians 2 kind of life. Yeah. And, and I have Brian, a personal I, question real quick for, for you, Brian. Uh, this was like the one question just selfishly maybe I wanted to ask you is uh, – you have a unique role in that I feel like you've been a translator um, for many years now in the sense that, uh, similar to myself, I, I often speak a lot, but I'm not speaking to people my own age. I'm actually like translating young people to older people or I joke chronologically superior people uh, <laughs> because I don't like being called older. So I would say chronologically emphasis on superior people. But you're in this place where it's like grown up predominantly in black churches, but I mean, over the last 10, 15 years, you've been in a lot of places where you're the person of color translating in maybe predominantly white churches. Um, when you look at your story, uh, do you see like signs? Do you have any stories where you could share like, oh, I could see God preparing me for this role and for this time? All right. So let me let me make the point and then give you one, one quick story. Um, I've made up in my mind I want to be a reconciler, not an activist. Those are two different things. Yeah, that's good. So activists are issue driven, right? So we got to, you know, have police reform or whatever the issue is. We're issue driven. Activists are concerned about the what. Praise God for them. Yeah. Um, reconcilers take it to a next step. While activists are concerned about the what, reconcilers are concerned about the who and the how. So that while activists are issue-driven, reconcilers are people-driven. And good. so I, I want to I bring people together. I'm not just for diversity. I, I, want, I want people to walk in close relationship. And so that's why, Grant, I get in trouble all the time because I, mm -hmm. I, I say things like white privilege is a real thing. White supremacy is a real thing. But I, wanna, I don't like using those terms. Because a lot of times when you use those terms, you cut off a whole group of people. So if, if, if bringing people together means I just need to shift my language and I can still deal with these very real concepts, then yeah. that's what I'll do. So I, I want to I be in that lane and I want to encourage people to pick up what Paul called the ministry reconciliation, which I know primarily is vertical. 
but it's also got to be, be horizontal. Now, now for the story, um, real quick, I was um, at my godfather's church in Inglewood, fresh out of, uh, well, while going through seminary, 13,000 person black church, spring of 1998, God calls me out of there to join a, a predominantly white church in Pasadena. Uh, as their first African-American pastor on staff in the history of that church over a hundred years. And I walked in there like Jonah walked into Nineveh. See, I, I, Jonah's interesting because Jonah shows us that you can preach the gospel, but you can do it from a posture of bitterness and racism. And that's how I was when I walked into Lake. And what God had to do uh, to me there was those people, those white people loved me like I've never been loved before. And it was a really transformative time in which I had to say, just because you're white and just because you're wealthy does not mean you don't have a heart. Um, and, and what God did was, as my friend Eric Mason says, proximity breeds empathy. That now I began to just live in close relationship with them, and it began to buff off the abrasive edges of my life in ministry. That's awesome. That's awesome. This, this idea, Brian, of being sensitive to words, I mean, if there's anything we're seeing as we're trying to really engage, you know, at Exponential this fall, we're shifting from big regional events to over 100 roundtable events uh, focused exclusively on race conversations. And uh, I have been surprised at, I, I shouldn't have been, but I have been surprised at the how strong the emotional responses to words are, to like just individual words. Um, So if you could play a little bit further into this idea of the one thing you wish people would do is preach the holistic gospel. Even that, we, uh, if you said that to a hundred white pastors, many of them are going to say, what are you talking about? I do. Um, What's the, push into it a little bit more of what you see keeping them from doing it and even give them a little bit more handle on the definition of that, like to, uh, of, of what it means to do that. Yeah. So a couple of things come to mind. And I actually explore this again in my book, Insider Outsider. Um, I, I think in some senses, uh, some of my conservative evangelical friends have been handcuffed by systematic theology. And I, look, I, I think systematic theology is helpful. It, it, it allows us to, as Tom Nelson says, uh, palm our Bibles. Um, but you can never contain the infinite God in a man-made system. So, for example, uh, dispensi- dispensationalism, which was um, a classic, um, classic dispensationalism, which was a, a 19th century uh, invention that was later on uh, peddled by the likes of Charles Ryrie and C.I. Schofield. It says, Israel's over here, church is over here, kingdom is yet future. Um, and so because of that, we only need to really preach to the souls of people, right? Um, dispensationalists didn't march in the streets uh, of Birmingham or Selma. Um, you know, it's interesting to think uh, D.L. Moody, Listen, I love D.L. Moody, but it's interesting to think that him and Ida B. Wells lived in the same city at the same time, but never worked with each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and so because this system preached kingdom is yet future, it, it was a middle to upper middle class, affluent white way of viewing the scriptures. What I mean by that is when I'm living in poverty, when I have to trust God for a bus pass, I want some of the kingdom to be right now. So, so see how, that, how different that is? And so the reason why some of my white conservative brothers can, can preach just kind of the vertical dimensions of the gospel is because they've been blinded by affluence, some of them, right? Um, and so I would also say they need to read Jesus. If you read Matthew 25, 31 to 46, when Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats and the goats will be on his left and they will be cast into hell. And the difference is whatever you've done to the least of these, you've done also to me. I mean, if Jesus preaches that sermon now in the totality in which he gives it, his inbox is going to be full because what it seems like what he's saying is, is that if you want to get into heaven, you know, you, you've got to be generous towards the poor, which we understand in its theological context is not what he's saying. But still, if you understand the ministry of Jesus, both what he taught and what he modeled, 
And when he came to bring the kingdom, there was a vertical dimension, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But there was a horizontal dimension where he was feeding people and clothing people and healing people. And oftentimes he does those things without even preaching the vertical dimensions of the gospel. So even if you just follow the, the, the model of Jesus, Jesus shows us by way of life that there's a holistic gospel that, that must be lived out. Brian, uh, in the book, you kind of had the, a very practical breakdown of like the five levels of communication in the pyramid. Uh, would you be able to kind of explain that for the audience? Yes. So I, I think the communication pyramid is really helpful as it relates to ethnic unity. And I would encourage us to take a deep dive into this. Uh, if you're a pastor tuning in or whoever you are, maybe with your small group or with some friends, um, in essence, what it says is there's five levels of communication. Um, and so, number one, the very surface level communication is cliche. Good morning, good morning, how are you? You've communicated, but you really haven't communicated. Next two levels I call sports center talk. It's where most guys hang out. Uh, level two is fact, <laughs> um, sharing what you know, who won the game, how many points did LeBron yeah, have. Yeah. Level three is, opi is opinion, sharing what you think. But levels four and five are indicator lights, um, that allows to assess the health of our, our deepest friendships and relationships. Level four is emotive. It's sharing how I feel. Level five is transparency. It's sharing who you are. Now, here's what happens. Uh, Ahmaud Arbery happens or Breonna Taylor happens or George Floyd happens, or I can go back to Michael Brown or Eric Garner. What happens is because the African-American community is a communal community, um, when these things happen, we immediately go level four. Right? Emotive. This is how we feel. Our white brothers and sisters tend to hang out at level two. Well, hold on. We don't know the facts. And to me, that's where we miss each other. Uh, if you're married, <laughs> um, I'll talk to married guys. If, if you're married and your wife comes to you at level four and you hang out at lawyer land at level two, that's not a, res a recipe for, for uh, empathy and oneness. If I want to be one with my bride, Corey, I need to first drop down to level four and feel with her until we resurface back up to level two facts. And so I just feel like uh, what, what needs to happen when these things take place is, yes, we can get to facts later, but let's, let's first stop and feel before we get to facts. Do you feel like uh, when we talk about communication and uh, especially between different uh, people's uh, how has the conversation changed um, over the last 10, 15 years? Because, like, this isn't your first book on this topic. You've, you've written several. And, um, yeah, how, how do you feel like just, yeah, the arc of the conversation has changed? Uh, and why, why do you think it's changed over the last, just to say, 10 years? Dramatically and in a good way, I feel like. Um, so my dad and I were just talking about this the other night. He was hanging out with us and. He said, 1968, I was a freshman in college. Dr. King gets assassinated. Um, he, he goes, I'm at a white college. No one said a word. I mean, just imagine that. No yeah. one says That's a crazy. word. Um, and he goes, man, the loneliness that I felt in that. Um, let me fast forward to 1991 um, or, or 92, uh, when, when, the King, when the, uh, Rodney King verdict comes out. Um, there was a sense in which, you know, it's kind of whispers in the hallways. Um, maybe a professor said something, um, but there was no real sense of empathy. Again, I'm at a white Bible college. There was no sense of let's pray about this in chapel or for sure there was no, you know, let's protest or lament. None of that. But Grant, here's where I think um, you're a real gift because the younger generation, um, th they have this justice edge to them that yeah. is refreshing. Now, are there some problems? Of course, but there's a wiring there that I haven't seen in previous generations. And, and I'm, I'm talking specifically, well, across the board, but specifically uh, with, with, with the white younger generation. And that's beautiful to me. Um, yeah. And call me, um, you know, hopelessly optimistic. I mean, they're the first ones to take to the streets um, they're the first ones to, you know, chant stuff like Black Lives Matter. And there's a lot I think my generation and older generations can learn from the younger. So I'm hopeful uh, in what I'm seeing in the younger yeah. generations. 
yeah, it's changed. It's changed. I mean, even, yeah, just last 10 years for me. Um, real quick question. I mean, if you were speaking to young Christians that are on the front lines of this conversation, and now they're, they're building on the foundation that you guys have given us and generations before, uh, what would be like quick words of advice? Like, hey, keep pushing here and also watch out for this. Yeah, so I, I would say um, let the gravitational pull uh, to your advocacy always be the gospel. So let, let everything you do orbit around the gospel because our progressive and liberal friends, and I don't use that pejoratively, um, they're out in the streets protesting as well. Um, they, they believe in diversity. There's just nothing weighty or substantive, uh, substantive to actually pull it together. Uh, and so I would say if you call yourself a Christian, what's got to differentiate us uh, from others is, man, there's just this weightiness um, this gravitational pull of the gospel of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that I think needs to be evident. And we can give a cup of cold water in Jesus's name. So I, I would say that's the primary thing, uh, which is why I'm, you know, I'm, I'm quick to parse out the difference between the sentiment Black Lives Matter um, from the structure or the system of Black Lives Matter. Uh, because what I read in the structure, you know, wanting to get rid of the nuclear family and think, uh, well, my, my, the gospel in me won't let me get with that part of what you're doing. But the gospel in me will also take to the streets and yell out the sentiment as well. And so I'm concerned that the younger generation can get carried away and go down some trails that are in direct opposition to the gospel because they can elevate justice over the centrality of the cross of Christ, if that makes sense. Yeah. We're, we're going to take a, a couple more questions here, Brian, and then uh, I'm going to encourage those who are watching live right now to put through the chat your questions. We're starting to get some questions in, and we're going to uh, begin asking your questions here in just a couple of minutes to Brian. So uh, be sure in the chat there to put your to put your questions in. Um, Brian, a couple of things, uh, sort of random here. W one of the things we do on Candid Conversations is even this idea of words and definitions and so forth. Let me go really high level for a minute. Y your book talks about, and you've mentioned white evangelicalism. Just give us a simple definition for people who might say, yeah, I consider myself a Christian, but I don't really know what that is. Um, how would you just simply define it? Yeah, it's a it's a um, it's a, a, a theological point of view that has been elevated to an unhealthy um, level of power that is actually oppressive. And so, one of the things that I argue is uh, is it's impossible to study the Bible uh, um, objectively. We all carry uh, how we're made, how we're wired, our worldview into the text. So. I see things as a man, but at the same time, my maleness blinds me um, from a healthy female perspective. Um, I see things as a black man. You see things as a white man. Uh, one of the things I do when I, when I teach a class on preaching at a seminary is um, the first day I ask the question, what's black preaching? What's black theology? And this mostly white, white class, hands will go up. Well, then I go, well, what's white preaching? What's white theology? Silence. See, it's, it's, hard to, um, it's hard to identify and speak to what you have mainstreamed and normalized. And so I would say just like water is to a fish, white evangelicalism is to modern-day Christianity. And so we've taken a perspective and we've elevated it. So, for example, this whole concept of being disqualified from ministry, um, we, we, we must understand that's nowhere found in the Bible. First Corinthians 9, Paul talks about being disqualified for the prize, right? But there he's talking eternal rewards. Uh, I'm not saying you shouldn't fire somebody, uh, but what I am saying is that phrase disqualified from ministry, I never heard that in the black church. It wasn't until I got to the white church that I heard that. So there are some things, and white is not a four-letter word, there are some things that are specific to the white church that that white church has now mainstreamed and says everybody's got to follow this. Uh, and, and I'll say this lastly, part of my concern is, is white evangelicalism now has gotten into bed uh, with the Republican Party. 
And I think we've got to be careful of that. Uh, I think you should vote your conscience. I think you should vote your convictions. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not elevating one party over the other. Here's what I do know. The kingdom of God cannot nestle neatly within one political party. And so uh, Tim Keller says in his book, Preaching, that robust preaching, people should always leave my sermons going one week, does he watch Fox News? And then the next week, maybe, is he watching MSNBC? Because the kingdom of God is so much bigger than that. And so if, if you're completely comfortable, for example, with one political party, I'm not sure you are really living into the fullness of the kingdom of heaven. And that cuts both ways. Hey, I want to uh, start kind of giving you some questions, Brian, from the chat. Um, and also just uh, encourage anyone that's listening, if you guys want to ask some practical questions, personal questions, uh, feel free to put them in the chat. But uh, Brian, here's a question. Um, it says, I'm just going to read it to you. It said, Brian, I've got a good number of earnest white folk in my church who want concrete direction. What should I do? What might be some clear, concrete things a predominantly white church might do as a community or as individuals? Have you seen white churches doing creative things like sharing staff or regular financial giving? Yeah, so I, I think we've got to take a multi-tiered approach, and I appreciate the heart of the question. Number one is lament. Um, I think we've got, to, we've got to first stop and lament. And in order to lament well, we've got to listen well. I think if we, if we bypass lament on our way to quick solutions, that's a cheap reconciliation. And um, you know, Job's friends were at their best the first seven days when they just sat in the ashes and didn't say anything. <laughs> so um, I, I, think, I think the same is true for us. Yeah, I, I think in general, the church just does a horrible job listening to each other. And uh, if you don't believe that, go to someone's Facebook page. Uh, we just don't listen well. And so I yeah. think step one's lament. Step two, it's not, as, it's, it's not that glamorous, but I've been doing this work uh, for a long time. And at the end of the day, the secret sauce is relationships. You just need relationships with the ethnically other. Um, and it doesn't mean every or most times you get together, you're talking about ethnically specific issues. You're just doing life with one another. Uh, a great book to read along these lines is Reggie Williams's book, Bonhoeffer's Black Jesus. It was a groundbreaking book to me. Because one of the things um, uh, Reggie Williams points to is this, the power of relationships and how that formed Dietrich Bonhoeffer. So for example, Bonhoeffer was this prodigy. I think he graduated his PhD around 2021. 20, uh, in the 1930s, he comes to Harlem uh, to do a fellowship over at Union, uh, which is right in the heart of Harlem, which is right in the 1930s, the Harlem Renaissance. And Dietrich Bonhoeffer uh, ends up joining a historically black church, the Abyssinian Baptist Church, which is still around to this day. So, so he's listening to, to black preaching, and this is what Bonhoeffer said. It's the first time in my life I heard the fullness of the gospel in all of its glorious implications. He teaches Sunday school. He befriends a guy named Albert. Albert turns him on to Negro spirituals. Bonhoeffer falls in love with him, takes him back to his makeshift seminary when he goes back across the pond. Albert takes him on a trip down south in the 1930s. He sees the ugliness of Jim Crow. Here's what I'm trying to say with all that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer's conclusion is, I do not go back to Germany to fight for the oppressed without first taking a stop in Harlem and hearing the gospel lived out and preached to the, to the oppressed. What is he saying? What formed me and transformed me wasn't just reading the word of God as powerful as that is. It was immersing myself no. in ethnically other community. We need that. That's not an elective. That is core curriculum to the Christian life. Yeah. You know, I never knew that story. I've never heard that before. Um, and it, it really triggers for me when I hear you say that. The, have you recently seen this post of For All? I know you've known about it for a while, but like, I just saw a post about like Albert Einstein coming to America and spending pretty significant time at black colleges. And uh, I just, I'd never heard these stories of certain white, very glorified individuals. And, they're not just relationship, but conviction when it comes to reconciliation. Yeah, Einstein spoke out 
I mean, vociferously against uh, injustice. And he spoke at a lot of HBCUs. I mean, um, everybody was trying to give him an honorary doctorate or whatever. And Einstein <laughs> wouldn't do too many of those, but he did. He went to Lincoln and, uh, and Philadelphia and so on and so forth. Another thing about Bonhoeffer is, you know, that phrase, cheap grace. Yeah. He didn't coin that. He got that from Adam Clayton Powell, his black pastor at the Abyssinian Baptist Church. So I think that's that's an important narrative that, that we need to incarnate that in our own lives. Yes. So, Brian, we've got another question here that, you know, we're, we're living in divisive times. We're entering probably a divisive political uh, cycle right now with an election coming up. So how do we maneuver the political cycle to be able to stay focused on healthy race conversations amidst a political cycle, especially for church leaders that are, you know, some of their churches are polarized even on the political spectrum. So I want to, I want to encourage us. And um, maybe what I'm about to say is a little counterintuitive. You know, we're wrestling with this at our church right now. And the thing I've been encouraging our leadership here is, you know, I I think a lot of churches um, seasons like this, they just kind of ignore it, and they say, let's just stay as far away as possible from it. I actually think, especially just given the uniqueness of this year, I think we actually need to run to it and use this election cycle in a redemptive way to try to foster ethnic unity. And that's why I would just say, if you're a leader in your church, uh, passages like Romans 14 is your friend. Because what Paul is doing in Romans 14 is He's showing how to navigate lesser matters in such a way that they don't cause division. And politics is a lesser matter. It's, it's not essential to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Once I check that box, I, I think now I can walk through Romans 14 in a healthy way. Um, and, you know, where he talks about uh, the weaker brother. And uh, I, I, think, I think we've got to speak to those things in such a way that we're not endorsing a party or belittling a party, but actually saying, how can we draw near with one another? But I, I, it's a lot of planning. Um, I think you can preach on it. That's the air war. But the ground war, I think, has to be we have to work these things out uh, in small groups within the context of community. Uh, We need to understand one another uh, in ways that are healthy without trying to change each other. (laughs) You you know what I'm saying? And so um, we just got to make room for one another. Quick question. Uh, even on that comment, uh, I was listening to an interview with you where you said about like not coming to the table to change each other, but I think you said we're not issues to be solved. We are people to be loved. Right. I thought that was really powerful. Um, here's a question from, uh, I think will be pretty fun. I already know I'm going to have a follow-up, so be ready for that. So the question is, I'm, I'm white with several black friends who tell me that white people don't know how to do church. And they say, and he said, and they say it with love and they joke, but uh, they say white church is too quiet and stiff. They don't want to be a part of a white church. When you're talking about white evangelicals versus black evangelicals, um, what are you saying? Are you saying that we need to integrate on Sunday mornings to end racism? Um, so I, I hear a couple questions there. One is, Um, I don't want to elevate one ethnicity over another as it relates to how we do things. Uh, I do think we can learn from each other. And there are valuable things that I have learned and am continuing to learn from my white brothers and sisters. Um, And I think there's valuable things that our white brothers and sisters can learn uh, from the African-American community. And, you know, we can toss in the Hispanic community, so on and so forth. So, um, Yes, I, I would say that that would be um, that would be important to submit <coughs> to mutually submit to one another in a way that's redemptive and and healthy and whole. Now, Grant, what was the last part of that again? I think you were talking about like, do you think we need to really integrate on Sunday morning to end racism? So, so I'll say it this way: Dr. Corey Edwards, who is our Yoda when it comes to the multi-ethnic church. She's a Jesus-loving black woman uh, who is a PhD assistant professor of sociology at Ohio State University. She says that the average community that a church sits in is 10 times more diverse than that church. The average schools in that community that a church sits in is 20 times more diverse than that church. 
I believe the call of the local church is to reach their community, period. But the beautiful thing and the intimidating thing to a lot of churches is, is that God is literally bringing diversity to our communities. And so I think if you're a typical church today, that means your community is diversifying. And if you're doing a good job of reaching everybody in that community, that means that your sanctuary is reflecting what's happening in the communities and the schools. Now, are there communities where there's no diversity and there's um, homogeneity? Absolutely. In that case, be homogenous. But if you are in a diverse community, which is all in all likelihood the case, and you're not reaching them, I think I've got a missional question to ask, and that is, what is it about the way we're doing ministry that is not attracting all people to the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ? So I'll, I'll just answer it that way, Grant. Yeah. Okay, so here's my follow-up. Just uh, I actually have not heard this really addressed too much um, in like the conference world. I've, it more in like back rooms and conversations, but... What are your thoughts and advice to the broader church when it comes to over the last five years, we have not seen as many predominantly white churches desire and be very intentional about diversifying their staff. Um, and they're so much, they're so intentional about that uh, diverse leadership, diverse elders, diverse uh, teaching team, diverse worship. Um, and it's a lot easier I've found. Um, and there's a lot more people of color that are open to, going to those churches. However, I've not seen the same like equal enthusiasm and sacrifice from predominantly white churches to also join black churches or Latino churches or Asian churches that are also trying to diversify in their leadership, staff, worship, elders. Um, what, what are your thoughts on that? And maybe what's your advice maybe to the white evangelical church? Yeah, this is probably the most, um, the hardest thing I'll say. Um, and, and I'll, I'll encapsulate it in um, sociological data. Recent article came out via NPR, and what the data reveals is, is that our white brothers and sisters uh, will embrace, some will even endure, a multi-ethnic church until it gets to the 50% point. Mm -hmm. So this is data. What the data reveals is once a church crosses the 50% threshold, minority majority, there's a backdoor revival among our white brothers and sisters. They then speculate that the issue there is power, right? So when you can't control your environment, it just doesn't happen. So as I've worked with multi-ethnic churches who are transitioning, and Dr. Corey Edwards and I talked about this about a year, year and a half ago. Man, this, is, this really grieves me. There are so many cases of white churches becoming multi-ethnic. There is no case that we can think of where you have a minority church, especially a large black church that has gone multi-ethnic. And at the end of the day, the speculation is, our white brothers and sisters don't have a whole lot of stamina as it relates to being minorities, sustained minorities. Yeah. Powerful. I, you're going to think I'm the political commentator and I'm really not here. Um, <laughs> we, <laughs> I promise I'm not. Um, we, history was made with the election of President Obama as the first black president. Uh, history's made here as of the time we're doing this with the first woman of color uh, elected as a vice presidential candidate. Um, what are you hoping legacy wise now? So we had President Obama and now we've got Kamala Harris. Um, what are you hoping comes of that in terms of progressing the, the conversation further into the future? Yeah, so... <laughs> Let me be very clear. Um, I'm talking ethnically, not ideologically, not politically. I'm yep. talking purely from an ethnic right. standpoint. Um, my, part of what I labor for is I want to get rid of the phrase, the first. Um, and I just long for there to be a day when it's just President Obama or President who whatever, and because it, this has just become so normal, right? 
Um, so I, I would I would say that's the primary thing. Um, and so as a minority, from an ethnic perspective, when I when I see that, there is a sense of um, of dignity, elevated dignity. There's a sense of value that I feel. Um, you know, in the same way that my grandfather would sit uh, and watch Jackie Robinson play. Um, but I long for, just like the major leagues now, you don't use that phrase, the first. It's just kind of normal. I long for the day when, when we can get to that. Now, that said, let me give you some backroom talk that me and my middle-class African-American friends have uh, as it relates to Obama you know, one of the one of the things, if you just look objectively as a, at at his presidency, from an ethnic policy perspective, uh, Obama did far more for our friends in the gay community than he did for the black community. Um, and so that's an interesting discussion where you know you look at his eight year tenure and you go, is the black community better off? No, the statistics actually say the wealth gap between black and white has actually increased. It hasn't decreased. Um, and so just because a person is our color and ethnicity doesn't mean they're going to labor really hard um, to help uh, our people. So, yeah. Question from the chat. Uh, let's see. It's saying, what would be some public applications for biblical advocacy of justice for churches, gospel, nonprofits, and leaders. I, I, I'm thinking she's saying, or he is saying, uh, maybe what are some organizations uh, that you would say, you know that we could probably get behind that maybe uh, we wouldn't be aware of, and some leaders, uh, unless you read it. I, I, I couldn't tell exactly what I was saying, but I felt like saying, what are some groups we should be listening to or paying attention to or maybe even getting behind and giving to. And we can expand it to resources, Brian, for church leaders that are trying to advance this conversation and make progress. What are some resources, whether it's groups or books or conferences that you would say are helpful to you and the church you're serving at now? Yeah, so I, I would say I would say several things here. Uh, number one, um, and I know this wasn't the heartbeat of the question, I, was, I wouldn't be so quick to outsource your, your justice initiatives. Um, you know, I, I, would, I would encourage you as a local church to kind of fumble your way through these things. Um, and you don't have to be an expert before you get out of the boat and you, you swim in these waters. So uh, that, would be, that would be the first thing uh, I, would, I would recommend. Um, you have to be very discerning when it comes to knowing who your people are, and then matching the resources to their ethnic maturity levels. You know, so if you're just getting into this and you would say, man, we're at a first grade level, don't assign them the autobiography of Malcolm X. <laughs> you know, I'm just, I'm being a little facetious there, but um, if you're just getting started, great books to read um, would be Tony Evans, Oneness Embraced. Um, you know, I, I would I would recommend uh, George Yancey, African American sociologist, his book Beyond Racial Gridlock. The, this is for people who are just getting started in this space. If you're a little bit more advanced, uh, I would I'd recommend Jamar Tisby's wonderful book, um, The Color of Compromise. Uh, Sung Chan Ra wrote a great book uh, called Prophetic Lament. Uh, these are these are wonderful books that I think can can help you get into that. Um, the Southern Baptist Church, I just worked with them. They uh, put out a, a great video resource called Undivided. And there's a, actually, it's a two-volume thing. Um, and I'm in the, the second volume of that. Right now, media, I, I would encourage you uh, as a church, think about uh, purchasing a subscription to Right Now Media. And there's a ton of resources on there uh, that can help you uh, press down ethnic unity across the board. So those are a few things I would, I would suggest. We, we've got another question here, Brian, that I, I, I hear this one fairly routinely now, so I want to go ahead and ask it. Yeah. Um, many white evangelicals state that the solution to racism and injustice has changed hearts through the gospel. Others state that unjust policies, and I'm assuming structural and systemic biases, uh, need to change and hearts will follow. 
how do you uh, how do you balance that spectrum? Is it an or? Is it an and? And how do you just maneuver that spectrum? So yeah, let me just say this first. So that I think threads back to the resource deal, uh, and I'm I'm glad I'm thinking of this. Um, I, I would say even if you're at an elementary level, divided by faith is a must read. Uh, Christian Smith and Michael Emerson. Uh, it's a seminal work. All all roads uh, as it relates to ethnic unity in the church goes back to that. Two white uh, Christian sociologists and. One of the things they, they dig out is exactly what you just said, and that is the typical white conservative evangelical narrative is kind of each one reach one, get to the heart. We don't necessarily have to deal with the other thing. Um, when in reality is, listen, on the one hand, I, I believe in total depravity. Uh, not in extent, but uh, not in degree, but in extent. All of us, every aspect of our life has just been colored by sin. I have a friend of mine who says, if sin were blue, we'd all be Smurfs. It just colors all of who we are. Um, and so what happens now is when you get a group of sinners who now construct systems, those systems are going to get contaminated by our sin. And so is it personal? Yes. Is it systemic? Yes. So, for example, let me just give you one structural system uh, that I think is a great example of systemic racism. Um, you know, if, if you look in the South, uh, when Brown versus Board of, Educa of Education uh, begins to make its way through the South, many times it doesn't take place to the late 60s, early to mid 70s. What the white evangelical conservative community did was they said, you know what, we don't want our kids to go to the same schools as uh, minority kids. So they built their own Christian schools, private schools, and they priced out the ethnic minority demographic. Well, friends, I tell you, that is a system. If you want to get more into systemic injustice, read the wonderful book, The Color of Law. You have to read that. It's going to show you what systemic injustice looks like. So when we talk about principalities and powers, Ephesians chapter 6 I think that's a clear reference to Satan works not just on an individual level, but he works on a systemic level. And so I, I would just say we, we have to be about the redemption and the restoration of all things, both people's hearts and unjust systems. We've got time for one more question, and then we'll let if you have any closing thoughts after that too, Brian. So uh, do you want to pick one of them or do you want me to there, Grant? Uh, you can pick one. Go ahead. Um, the uh, Brian, on the five levels of communication or just in the communication side of things, um, in your own experience, what is most what's the most difficult thing for you and how do you overcome it to engage in healthy conversation on race? What for you, even as a person of color, what's the challenge to engage in a healthy conversation and how do you press through that and and turn it into an opportunity? For me, healthy conversations on uh, race and ethnic unity. Uh, it, it all rises and falls on the posture of the person on the other side of you. Um, if that person comes to me in humility, uh, honestly seeking answers, they may disagree at the end of the day, but that's a healthy conversation I want to be a part of. If a person comes almost from a defensive, even attacking mode, that's what makes the conversation difficult. It, it's not even about what we're talking about. It's the posture of the people who are engaging in dialogue. And so that's where I think, listen, I, I, have, um, I have problems with opponents of critical race theory. Um, I have a lot of problems with opponents of it. But I do think they are onto something, even when we look at it from a minority perspective. The idea of critical race theory is one of the tenets is we kind of see the world oppressed versus oppressor. And so I think what makes these conversations hard is when a person comes into the conversation already in their mind pr pronouncing you as guilty and just because of the color of your skin or just because of where you, and they're just going to stand in that and they're going to be entrenched in that. And there's no real humility. There's no real possibility for change there. That's what makes these conversations tough. Hmm. Well, it's been uh, yeah. a real blessing to have you, Brian. If there's any uh, kind of final thoughts that you have, we're going to wind down here and uh, 
we really do appreciate you taking the time and investing in our uh, exponential community this way. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me. You know, I, I often tell people I'm uh, I'm laboring for a time I, I will not personally see. Uh, I'm laboring for my kids' generation. Um, you know, when my kids were younger, they came with me one time. Uh, I had to speak at a church. And, um, you know, they've always been involved in multi-ethnic churches. And uh, one of them said to me in the middle of this service where I'm serving as a guest, Dad, why is this church all white? And not that all white churches are, are bad or whatever or all black churches, but I said, that's it. Um, his normal is what our future eternal reality is going to be. And so let's, let's not grow weary in well-doing. Uh, let's continue to love one another, have hard conversations, and keep pressing forward. Great. Thank you, Brian. Thank you, Brian. Thank, Thank you, you, Grant. We'll see everybody next week. This fall, Exponential is hosting roundtable events in cities all across America. These half-day gatherings in smaller settings will allow church leaders to prioritize peer-to-peer conversations and receive practical training on how to prepare their church to lead for racial reconciliation. Exponential roundtables will help you continue to pursue church multiplication in these challenging times. Find a roundtable near you this fall by visiting multiplication.org.